The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. As I have worked my way through Zephaniah, what has seemed clear to me is that we as Christians living this side of Jesus' coming have to be reading this book through an already-but-not-yet lens. That there are elements in this book that were anticipated by Zephaniah, that were all future, that for us are now past. And yet, not everything that was future for Zephaniah is past. There are still things that are future to, that were future to Zephaniah that are also future for us. And the reason this is the case is because Zephaniah is back here in the old covenant age, looking ahead to the day when God would judge sin. Looking ahead to the day when God's kingdom would do away with all evil. In Jesus' first appearing, Christmas, Easter, the future comes into the present. And at the cross, Jesus bears all the fiery wrath of God. He is the sacrifice of the day of the Lord. And what's to come on the other side of the day of the Lord is new creation. A people, a church, a community that is gathered calling upon the name of the Lord, serving Him with one accord, and that people is made up of not only redeemed from Judah, but those who are now coming into Judah. Those who are as far away as ancient Ethiopia being engrafted into the one people of God. And Zephaniah, as a son of Cushi, a son of an Ethiopian, I believe is celebrating the fact that God still has something for his people. It's one of the elements I never expected getting to study this book as long as I have, write a commentary on this book. Having adopted three children from Ethiopia, I never expected going in that I would get to celebrate their potential redemption like I've gotten to walking through Zephaniah. But Ethiopia is front and center because Zephaniah appears to have been a biracial Jew. He was half Judean blood in the line of David and half Ethiopian blood. And his own life is a testimony to the ultimate big kingdom of God, of people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. So last week we were in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, and we saw this anticipation of what Peter asserts in the early chapters of Acts, and and Luke, writing it, crafting it, which parts of the story am I going to tell? He appears to be telling the story of Pentecost and the growth of the early church in a way that recalls, intentionally, Zephaniah. So if you know your Bible well, and you're reading the New Testament, you're reading this apostolic testimony in light of the prophetic voice. For at that time, at the time of the day of judgment, which I have suggested for all the elect, for all those in that the God has said, you will be mine, that judgment of verse 8, the fiery wrath of God was born at the cross. 
And at that time of the cross event, all the ages shift so that the future new age comes into the present. New creation happens, and Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. His resurrection anticipates all of our resurrections. New creation comes in the resurrection of Christ, and with that, verses 9 and 10, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Babel will be reversed. Now not unity against God, but now God's going to create a unity for Him. All these peoples will call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord from beyond the rivers of ancient Ethiopia, Cush. My people, the daughter of my dispersed ones, that He dispersed at Babel, 70 nations thrust all over the world. The daughter... That is, generations that have grown up out of them, now God is raising up a new generation of people who are following Him. And they will bring His offering, bring God His offering, like priests gathering to the presence of God. So, as we move into this new section, verses 11 through 13, I want you to recognize what's happened. Jerusalem has been transformed, the the image of Jerusalem. In chapter 3, verse 5, God's presence was in Jerusalem. And now in this very place is gathered people from every tongue and tribe and nation. They've gathered in to this place on the other side of judgment. They have been saved through judgment. Which I'm proposing is the church has been saved through the Judgment that Christ has borne. But for the rest of the world, Jesus' day of the Lord judgment, that future coming into the present, hasn't happened for most of the world. For most of the world, the judgment day is still to come, when Jesus, as the great King of all, will return and overcome all evil. And so we're in this window called the year of the Lord's favor, as we anticipate the day of vengeance of our God. And in this year of the Lord's favor, that's now been extended for 2,365 day periods, in the year of the Lord's favor, remember that's Jesus' language from Isaiah 61. He quotes it when he kicks off his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to proclaim good news, to proclaim gospel. That's what Jesus said he was about. To proclaim the gospel to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But the very next line was, to proclaim the vengeance of our, the day of the vengeance of our God. A year of favor, a day of vengeance. And Jesus didn't quote that part. Suggesting that we're in the year of the Lord's favor, and what are we doing right now? We as a people of God are being transformed while there is still old age in Adam, still sin abounding, the curse blinding, all kinds of people around us, and we're in this year of the Lord's favor where He is, at this during this window, calling us to proclaim the terms of peace. Because the King is coming. He has come, and He will return. But when He returns, it will not be as a humble servant. 
It will be as a conquering king. And we will see it visibly. And only those who during the year of the Lord's favor have surrendered to him will experience peace on the day of his wrath. Because the day of his wrath has already been, has already come on the person of Jesus. And if we're in him, we've already journeyed through judgment and now we're enjoying already new creation. So our call is to let as many people know that the day of the Lord is coming. The king will return. And right now they have the opportunity to experience peace. Now we come to our new unit. On that day. Notice that verse 11 and verse 16 both start the same way. On that day. And so there's a frame. Verses 14 and 15 are sandwiched in between of two on that day sections. And both of them are then giving clarity to what's going to happen on the day when the fires of God's wrath come and on the day when a people is purchased for God that has transformed lips, transformed lives, and are standing side by side, made up of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. What's going to happen on that day? And so as I'm reading this, I'm going to be reading it as something that is already related to us. Not simply something that we're looking to happen in the future, but something that is already being experienced. And that should impact, then, how we read this section. I'm trying to model how I think we're supposed to read prophets. Through an already-but-not-yet lens, and always asking, what has Jesus already accomplished? that the prophets were anticipating, and then what does it mean for me? And what does it mean for those who are not trusting in him? So, as we look at chapter 3, verses 8 through 20, we've already seen the charge in verse 8. This is the main idea of this bigger section. Wait for the Lord. In chapter 2, we saw gather together and seek the Lord. Seek the Lord together. That was the first stage of the Savior summons the satisfaction. The second stage is, wait for the Lord. Don't give up. Keep trusting. So if it's seek the Lord together and wait for Him, pursue Him together patiently. This is a book calling for a patient pursuit of God. And we're in the patient part. What can motivate us to be patient? For God to return. For God to fix all the problems. And there were two reasons that were given. The dual basis of the charge to wait. Keep waiting because I, verse 8, still plan to punish evil. For, it says, my decision is to gather nations and to pour out my wrath. That's the first reason that we should wait. Because God is still serious about sin. So don't stop trusting Him now. But then there's a second reason, and it's in verses 9 and 10. Wait for me, for not only do I intend to punish evil, I intend to save. I intend to transform and make all things better. To build a, a community that is calling upon me. All of them dependent 
and all of them giving up their lives. That's what I'm planning to do. And now, now we come to verse 11, and what I see in verse 11 is, when it says, on that day, it's explaining further why we should wait for the Lord. This is the ultimate motivation. The ultimate reason why we should seek the Lord together and wait on the Lord is given here at the end. And I've been calling this the Savior's summons to satisfaction, joy, a satisfying salvation. And that's where he's headed. The ultimate motivation for trusting God today is all that he's promising to bring us in the future. So let's see how Zephaniah worked it out. 11 through 13, there's a promise given. On that day, what's going to come? On that day, that the Lord will not put Jerusalem to shame. There's a promise that the Lord will not put Jerusalem as a city to shame. And a city is made up of people who are gathered there. Keep waiting, ultimately, because... God is working in a way that will not let you be shamed in the presence of the world anymore. No more shame. Where there was sin, it's been addressed. Then we have this outburst of joy. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's where we're going to end just before Christmas, next week, Lord willing, 14 and 15. And then the promise that the Lord will bring Consummate, ultimate, complete salvation is where the book ends. So let's look at this. On that day, what day are we talking about? Pardon? Well, what day did verses 9 and 10 refer to? Pentecost? What day did verse 8 refer to? The cross and the future. The future for all who are not in Christ, the cross for all who are. Is everybody tracking how I'm reading this and how I've built up the argument? So now we come to verse 11 and it says, On that day... You shall not be put to shame. When the fire of God's wrath comes down, you who have been transformed, specifically the you here, and we won't see it in the ESV, but the you is feminine singular. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem. So if you turn just back a few verses, back to chapter 3, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. That's the city. The oppressive city, namely Jerusalem. And she is referred to as a girl. The city is pictured as a woman. And when we move to verse 11, it's that city, feminine, singular, that is addressed. But Jerusalem has been changed. No longer an oppressing city, now she's been transformed, and the city, 
That is, all who are gathered into her to worship God. That's where verse 9 ended, or verse 10 ended. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers shall bring my offering. Well, where's God? Verse 5 of chapter 3 told us He was in Jerusalem. And all these peoples then that have gathered in that now make up the city of Jerusalem will not be put to shame. That's what it says. And then it's going to give reasons why they won't be put to shame. And we see that when when God is addressing... I mean, He addresses the Philistines as you, which is really strange. But when He's talking about Judah as sinners, He doesn't call them you. He leaves them as her, just like a distance away from God. But now all of a sudden, Jerusalem has been brought near. This is God's love. Jerusalem is the center of the world. But don't just think city. Think people. That this is where... And think presence. This is the people who are gathered around His presence at His temple. Not Christmas presents. Um, gathered around His spirit manifestation. His presence. So... They're there worshiping him, and it's those people now gathered in the city who will not experience God's shame. He won't put shame on them. Ezekiel 36 talks about how the new covenant community will forever feel, will will forever loathe their sin. The new covenant community who's been purchased by God, who's been redeemed, who now has the Spirit, are a people who loathe their sin. Forever, we will hate our sin. It won't be something we will forget. It's like ballast on a ship. A super high sail of God's grace. And God is carrying us in our sailboat unto an eternity of glory. But we need forever a deep, is it called a keel? A deep keel that goes super low. And that keel is the ever-present reminder of our sinfulness. Lest we get so caught up in the grace of God, we begin to be puffed up ourselves, thinking about, wow, I'm so grace-filled. And we need that ever-present reminder of deep-seated grief of who we are apart from that grace. And I think Ezekiel 36 tells us that'll stay with us forever. But the presence of loathing sin is a very different thing than being put to shame by the living God. And the promise here is that you will not be put to shame. Open shame. Mocking. Judgment. No, it's all been paid for. Whatever happened in chapter 3, verse 8, when the fires of God's wrath came down, this group was hidden that makes up the new Jerusalem. And they will not be put to shame. And now we get two reasons why they will not be put to shame. This, This city, she, will not be put to shame. This Jerusalem. Reason one. Look with me. What it says, for, verse 11, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. For, Jerusalem, 
I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Back in chapter 2, verse 3, we learn something about those to whom Zephaniah was pleading. What did we learn about them in chapter 2, verse 3? Humble ones. That's the opposite of pride, isn't it? Jerusalem is going to be made up of those who are identified with the presence of God. This new community that makes up a new city, the glory of which will expand to fill the earth. That's how Revelation 21 and 22 pictures the ultimate end of all things. It's a city coming down called the New Jerusalem, a city, and then that same city is the new heavens and the new earth, and it looks like a cube, the Holy of Holies. And it's become everything. There's no distinction between holy God and unholy world. No, everything's been brought into the Holy of Holies so that now we don't have a temple that distinguishes gradations of holiness. No, all there is is the Holy of Holies, and it's called a city. It's become everything. The entire new creation, the new earth, the new heavens are the city where the presence of God is at the center and the light of God and the light of His Lamb is uh, pushing away all shadows. I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones And you, Jerusalem, shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. What does God think of the proud? He opposes the proud. But what does he give to humble people? Grace. Humility is not just self-abasement. Push, putting down self. Humility has to be matched because there's lots in the world that are hurting themselves and it's really just another form of pride. Because they're so focused on their brokenness, their smallness. Humility in the Bible is defined less about me and more about him. Am I dependent on the living God? Have I turned away from myself as the only, as the sufficient satisfier and supply and said, I can't find it in myself. I need someone greater. God opposes those who are self-reliant and he embraces those who are God-dependent. And the Jerusalem that's being portrayed here is a city that will be, have the proud removed. The people of God on the other side of judgment are not going to be made up any longer of remnant and rebel. Remember chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, it told us about Jerusalem. She, the city, listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. That's proud. When you are prayerless, when you refuse to listen to correction, when you're not drawing near to Him in your desperation and need, That's proud. How about verse 3? Her officials within her, roaring lions. 
Someone clarified for me, when a lion roars, he's not hunting. He hunts in silence. When he roars, he's elevating himself and making everyone else try to tremble at him. Her officials are trying to have people be afraid of them rather than of God. This text is answering it directly. Those who elevate themselves, think about the Assyrians in verse 15 of chapter 2. I am, and there is no one else. And God just pushes them aside. I will not live with that kind of arrogance. Her officials are roaring lions, her judges, evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. It's a proud thing to elevate yourself over others and then seek to feast on them, to oppress them like a wolf in the evening, and then trying to clean it all up so that no one, when daytime comes, knows what happened. So God's going to remove all the proud And what's amazing is there's still a people left. And the only way we can understand this is that somehow, for God to remain just, the sacrifice of the day of the Lord has somehow been borne by another. And Zephaniah is already speaking after the days of Isaiah, after the days of David in the Psalms, where the Messiah is portrayed as the suffering servant who stands as a substitute. He becomes the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And I think that's how we're supposed to move our way into Zephaniah. We're supposed to read it through that lens, asking ourselves, how is this possible that anyone has lived through the day of the Lord? It's the humble who have looked away from themselves all on God, ultimately through his Messiah. If God removes the proud, what does he leave? We see these, this group, the humble and the lowly, unpacked. And I'm looking at this and saying, I want to be there. What does it look like? How are they described? Just look at the rest of verses 12 and 13. What do you see? They trust in the Lord. They're seeking refuge. Remember that? That was the first stage in the Savior summons to satisfaction. Seek the Lord together. Seek Him. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, and now this group, what if they saw it? It's not just seeking the Lord, it's seeking refuge in the name of the Lord. He is the strong tower, the only help. This is a cursed world, and the only thing to keep us from it is refuge in the name of the Lord. Or as Psalm 2 unpacks it, it's not just in the name of the Lord, it's finding refuge in His Son, His anointed one. Look at the ground statement in the very last line of verse The ground statement in the very last line of verse 13, chapter 3. So this people, I will leave in the midst of people humble and lowly. What are they going to be like? What does it mean to be humble and lowly? Well, you're going to seek refuge 
Not in yourself, not in the strength of man, but in the name of the Lord. And then it tells us what they're not going to be like, because they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Why don't they have to be afraid and why are they at rest? Notice that it's not afraid. We're not talking about fear of God. We're talking about there is none to make them afraid, meaning that the people around them are, there's no, they don't have to be afraid of the evil or of evil people. Okay, the evil has gone and been removed. At some level, this, that, that's, at one level, that's what this is saying. And yet we have to say, okay, how does that work with the already but not yet? Right? Because here we are, and there's lots of people that can kill the body, but what can't they do? Kill the soul. So continue to fear him who can kill both body and soul and throw it into hell. I say fear God because look at chapter 3, verse 7. I said, surely, surely you will fear me. If I bring judgment on everyone around you, surely you will fear me. So God wants them to fear him. And the result would be, if they accepted correction, their dwelling would not be cut off. But as it were, they didn't fear God, and therefore Jerusalem is destroyed. When, there was, when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus, and he was sleeping, and the storms, storm was coming up, they freaked, right? And yet Jesus' response was what? When he finally woke up. What? Why are you not believing? Peace be still. And that's the reality that's already. That somehow, and we're going to see that for Zephaniah, he had... Next week, it's so beautiful. He had such a deep conviction that everything would ultimately be worked out, that he brings that conviction into the present. The future joy that's being promised becomes present joy. The desire for more becomes present delight. And somehow, that's what we're supposed to have. Notice the logic. Because... You shall graze and lie down, and none shall make you afraid. Therefore, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. Do you see how that works? What do all those sins relate to? Injustice, lies. Okay? So you've got these people who are protecting their back, elevating themselves up, but at the expense of whom? Injustice, lies, deceit. We've seen it elsewhere in the book. What's going on? You will not sin against others, but will actually be loving in your heart. That, that's the opposite of this kind of portrayal as I'm seeing it. You'll be working for justice. You'll be working for truth. No deceit. Remember, the speech has been transformed. Calling upon the name of the Lord. It's impacting the community. And the reason, what, what's actually fueling this ability to love 
rather than to elevate yourself and push others down is what? What's fueling it? What's the very last clause? For, so it seems, as, as was just said, I think it's all stemming from that seek refuge in the name of the Lord. That radical God dependence creates something. If you really know that God is for you, you don't have to fear other people. And when you don't fear and you're at rest, you just feel at rest with God, all of a sudden, what's going to be flowing out of you is God-honoring living. It's going to be love, even for those who are hard to love. There's, there's a fuel here, because you're sure that God is for you. It makes me think of Hebrews chapter 13, where the logic of the text is, don't covet because... It is written, I will never leave you or forsake you. So coveting, I want what you have. There's a discontentment rising in my soul. So that I, I want it. I, I want I would rather I have it than you have it. I, I want it. And how do we battle that? We battle it by knowing that God's with us. And this is what's been secured for us in Christ. That somehow... As we seek refuge in God's name every single morning, filling ourselves up in light of what Christ has accomplished for us, chapter 3, verse 8, because He has borne the wrath of God on our behalf, now God is working 100% for us, and I don't need to fear what others will think. I don't need to fear lack or loss. I can actually be fueled to love others, to be a big giver. To not be a liar or a deceiver. To be working for justice on behalf of the broken. All because, because I'm at rest with my God and he's at rest with me. I'm like a sheep and he's the shepherd. He's protecting me in every way. I don't have to be afraid of what others will do to me. Because somehow he has worked, he's conquered the biggest enemy, himself. Remember I said, I think this is why the Babylonians aren't mentioned in the book. Even though they're the ones who are going to destroy Jerusalem. And they're the power, Assyria is waning, Babylon is the greatest. But they're not even mentioned, I think, because God wants them to know, they're not your biggest enemy. I am the one you should be afraid of. And yet now this God all of a sudden becomes for them. He becomes a refuge and a protection for us in Christ already. And it gives us hope for the day when what is already started will be fully realized. Now, I have a whole bunch of application points. Let me just throw out a couple of them. Number one. This text is one reason why I'm a Baptist. Because it says the community that will be built by God after judgment has been wrought will not be made up of rebel. It will be made up only of remnant. Not those who are perfectly humble, but those who are really humble. And we've got to understand the difference. In this already but not yet stage, I'm not fully who I will be. 
But he's making me that. And already I'm experiencing something. Like Pastor Jason was saying. That we, this is not just what Jesus has purchased for us in his own body. At the cross he didn't only purchase our justification. He purchased our sanctification. He's making us increasingly humble. Think about how chapter 2, verse 3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. The humble seek greater humility. And that's the journey we're on right now. A journey of deeper God dependence in the wake of the evil that is still here. But the community has been established. And so I say a Baptist, Presbyterians will baptize babies, for example. And so they believe those babies become part of the community, the New Covenant community. But then you've got little baby rebels and those who've been transformed by God in in this community, and I don't think this text anticipates that. This text anticipates that on the other side of the wrath judgment at the cross, God will create a community that has been pure, and all those who are there, Jews and Gentiles alike, will be one Together, one people, notice how this text talks about them. It calls them the remnant of Judah, verse 13. Those who are left in in Israel, rather. But now those who are left in Israel, the remnant in Israel, includes those from Cush. They've come and brought their offerings to God. They're part of one big community. They've been engrafted into the people of God so that, like Paul in Galatians 6, I think it's verse 16, he talks about the church as the Israel of God. All of us, Jews and Gentiles who are in Jesus, all of us become Abraham's offspring. All of us become one new man, Ephesians 2. All of us become part of the same olive tree, Romans 11. Why? Because Jesus was the representative Israelite, and now we're in him. We become into Israel. And this community that's been shaped on the other side of the cross is a community that is calling on the name of the Lord, serving him with one accord. A community that's been purged of evil already. Already. May God help us seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Increasingly, may God help us be a, be a people in the alreadyness, in light of the not yetness, as there's lots of people who haven't arrived here yet. May we be a people who increasingly, and as we go through these holidays, it's the opportunities are going to be greater for many of us to share the hope, to be ambassadors of peace, to tell the terms of peace, the reality that sin is serious and that the king is coming. He's going to be called that in verse 15. The king. And he's coming. And when he comes, all hope will be pushed aside. But right now we're in this year of the Lord's favor where the wrath of God that is future can actually become past. And the identification marker is humility. May God keep us there. Father, I ask that you would 
Work in us what is pleasing to you. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. You exalt the lowly. Put us there, Father. May the disposition of our lives be one of surrender to the King. I thank you that a prophet so long ago can speak words of clarity to us. May we not fear man. May we fear God. May we not fear man. May the lack of that fear, the perfect rest, knowing that you are for us and you are the greatest, greater are you who is in us than he that is in the world. May we live without fear and out of that find fuel for love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.